0: Good morning. Good morning. Well, just to make one thing clear, obviously I'm not Terry Martins. My wife told me, told me to make that very clear. <laughs> um, Terry and them away for two months. So um, myself, um, Stuart, Paul and um, Dave Dean will have the privilege of te- teaching the Word. And... Um, For you guys, just just a little introduction. If you guys don't know me, I do have an accent, yes. And it's not New Zealand. I'm I'm South African, married to my beautiful wife, um, Australian wife Erin. We have three kids, um, two girls and one boy, and um, we're just really blessed. And so, um, yeah, we're going to teach the book of James. And so I've got um, the privilege of doing the whole first chapter this morning and a little bit of an introduction. So we're going to get straight into it. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. And I'll just do a quick um, little um, background to James. The order, author of the book is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, I'm saying half-brother because um, Joseph wasn't Jesus' father. God was Jesus' father, so um, he was a half-brother, and James was one who had serious doubts that Jesus was the Son of God. I mean, being his brother and all growing up with him, I mean, surely there's a, f- I mean, I think for myself, it's hard to believe if my brother was the Son of God. But basically, um, after the resurrection, um, Paul Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, that uh, Jesus, Jesus appeared to James, and that's when Um, after all those years that James basically um, believed that Jesus was the Son of God. Even to the point where he died as a martyr, um, tradition tells us um, that James was sharing his faith. He was um, standing on the top of the pinnacle of the temple and declaring that Jesus was deity and Jesus was the Son of God. He's alive and he's sitting on uh, on the throne on the right hand of God. And then, the, making a long story short, they tell us that the leaders in the crowd pushed James off the pinnacle of the temple. He fell about 100 feet down. He didn't die. He, he got up, um, got to his knees and prayed for his persecutors. And then they, they stoned him. And that didn't work. And, they, and then they took a club and, and hit him on his head and he died like that. And, and so we see his faith. You know, He died a martyr for his belief in um, Jesus being the Son of God and being his Lord. And then um, in the early days um, after the resurrection, um, James became an acknowledged leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was regarded, regarded by all with, uh, with reverence and respect, even by the Jews. And so he gained the title, James the Just One. Also, history, early history of the church says that James was such a man of prayer that he developed calluses on his knees and got the nickname camel knees. Approximately 20 years after Christ's ascension, this letter was written, about AD 44 um, to AD 49, so it predates Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council in AD 50, before this, and so obviously before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. It's possibly the earliest uh, New Testament book that we have, even before Matthew and probably before Galatians as well. Uh, Theological difficulties. There's not a lot of theological difficulties in this book. James basically says it as it is. He's very practical, very in-your-face. But there is uh, one thing that many scholars have taken up, the issue that uh, James and Paul contradicts their teaching on, um, Paul's teaching on grace is basically, it's by grace that you've been saved, not by works. And James teaches that um, faith without works is dead. But in reality, it actually complements one another, because we know that grace grace comes first, uh, comes through faith, um, in justification first, and then the works follows that of faith comes in sanctification. So the purpose of the the letter of James is, throughout James' epistle, the point is this. If your faith is genuine, your walk must be authentic, real, genuine. So basically, if you say that you believe as you should, then why do you behave like you shouldn't? So that's the overall purpose of this letter, and we'll see this, is um, to test our faith by the instruction of this letter. And um when you read this epistle you'll you'll see it's like it's sort of like velvet steel it's like a punch in your throat it's it's very in your face it's very practical and and James will hit us where it hurts at some points because um uh we'll see that we have to go through a testing of our faith to see if our walk with the Lord is genuine and real. And so um with that fasten your seats seat belts, put on your strap on your helmets because I'm going to try and teach this whole first chapter in oh, forty minutes and um, put on your helmets because we might get knocked around at some places in this but um, I would like to start just with with saying that the realness or genuineness of something valuable is affirmed through a process of examination or testing so it doesn't matter if it's gold or silver or any precious stones or metals or um, even money, it has to go through a process of testing to to um, basically see establish its its true value. And so, the most valuable product in the entire world, I would say, is the product of eternal salvation. It's priceless. It's of highest value to have a real relationship with God and Lord Jesus Christ. And so if we claim that, if we say, you know, I, I'm walking with the Lord, you know, I have a real relationship with that, we, that faith needs to go through a testing to, to sort of um, tell us if it's real or not. And so um, we'll see, yeah, what James is going to do. He's going to use three things in chapter 1 that's going to test our faith. And the first one we'll look at, will be um, the testing of our faith through trials and then we'll be looking at testing of our faith through temptation and then the third one will be testing our faith through our response to the sorry to the word of God. I just need to drink some water. So um James chapter one verse one. James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he uses the title that most of the apostles love to use. They love to take the um, title of being a bond servant of God. And, and basically that renounces any claim for any rights and turning their lives completely and totally over to God. And um, they did not consider their lives their own. They lived to serve the Lord and to please the Lord. And so a bondservant was just that, one who lived completely for his master. And so, and he did that willingly. He, um, he was driven by his um, complete and utter love for his master. And so we see James takes that title of being a, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes who were scattered and abroad. Greeting. So James is writing to the twelve tribes. So he's writing to Jews. But this letter definitely um, is practical for us as Christians and it does apply to all of us. James probably wrote this letter before um, most of the Gentile believers came into the church or majority of them, so he addresses this letter to the Jews, the believing Jews. And so, um, verse 2, and this is where we'll look at the first part testing of our faith in trials. My brethren, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And so the first thing that James encourages us to do is, yes, when we're going to fall or face any trials, and we will because he says when, he doesn't say if, when you face whatever trials, consider it joy. Have a joyous attitude. And that sort of contradicts what we we want to do, don't we? We, we want to go through through life without any obstacles, without any hindrances or anything like that. But we will face trials. And, and James says, you know what, don't fight it, don't rebel against it. You know, I like what um, uh, William McDonald McDonald's said, they, these trials are like our friends. You know, they, they develop our cr- Christian character. And so the purpose of trials are always to produce Christ-likeness in us. They are, they're there to bring us to a closer walk with God. And have you ever noticed that? You know, you go through trials and, and difficult situations, and what happens, it actually increases your... Um, it, it, it makes you more sensitive to the presence of God. Now have you noticed that you, 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 you search the Scriptures more to find answers? You go to pe- people and you say, Hey, can you pray for me in this situation? And so what trials does, it just brings us closer to a more dependent walk on God, to dependency on God. And that's the purpose of trials. Um, It draws us closer to God. And so we should count it as a privilege to face trials and go through that. And so the meaning of trials, basically it's a test. It's actually the same word that that, uh, James uses in verse 13 when he says, Let no one say when he is tempted... I am tempted by God. So, tempt and trials are pre- pretty much the same meaning in Greek, but it does have two different, um, two it's two different types. Basically, you see, God will allow trials to come into our lives, and He will um, use it, try and use it to bring us closer to Him, to bring us to a dependency on Him, and then Satan will come and he'll try and pervert that, and he'll try to make us disobey God and try and make us fall and and so the the difference is that you know the one is, is to produce um, Christ likeness and the other one is to draw us away from God so trials and temptation and so we are always faced with trials and temptation and when we are faced with trials and temptation you know we sort of have to make a choice and uh, we have to make a choice are we going to walk in the spirit or we're we going to walk in the flesh You know, and Paul talks about that in Galatians 5, verse 16 to 26. And when he says, you know, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And so using an analogy that I heard in Sunday school is, um, you know, there's two dogs. You know, the one's called flesh and the one's called spirit. And every day you get a little bowl and you have to feed one of them. And so these two dogs are always fighting and warring and strifing against one another. And you're going to either feed the flesh or you're going to feed the spirit. And whichever dog you're going to feed, that one's going to be, become stronger and sort of overpower the other one. And so that's how it is with us. And I think it's a great analogy with what Paul is saying is, you know, walk in the spirit and you shall fulfill the lust. You won't, won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. So basically, feed your spirit. What do we, how do we do that? We spend time in the Word of God. We, we, we seek the Scriptures and um, we pray. We have communion with God. And then instead of feeding the, the flesh. And so, um, so that's the choice we have every day with the trials and um, temptations. Verse 3 And knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, endurance. And so when we go through trials, um, there's a purpose to the test. And the purpose of the test is that I would have patience. And um, the word is hupomono. It's not so much patience as we understand it. I think a better translation is endurance. The word endurance too. Basically, means to stick to it, and uh, using a sport analogy, no pain, no gain. You know, if if you go to the gym and, and you you go and lift weights, and let's say you do bench press, and you take the barbell, you put some weights on, you you do a few um, reps, and then you have a break, and then you add a little bit more weights on on the sides. And you, you press again, and then you wait. And then after a while, it sort of starts hurting here. And if you do um, squats, it hurts there. But um, it hurts really bad. But the purpose of that is to build muscles, which is the purpose to make you stronger. So next time you can lift more weight. And so the, the same thing is, is with our spirit, uh, spiritual faith. Faith is like a spiritual muscle that needs um, needs that resistance. And I think trials are sort of that, that weight, that, that extra weight that you put on and lift and it develops your, your, your spiritual muscle, your trust um, in God and your walk with God. And so, um, so we have to grow spiritually and how we do it is through trials. God uses trials to, to develop that, that faith muscle, if you want to put it that way. Um, verse 4. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So let God do His work. Let endurance do what God wants it to do. What He's saying is be submissive to the trial. Don't fight it. Don't argue about it. Don't shake your fist at God and say, Oh, why are you doing this? Or why are you allowing this to happen? Just accept it and, and grow. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The word perfect here would be better translated, spiritual maturity. Now, patience or endurance is not the goal. The goal is perfection. The goal is spiritual maturity. Let endurance lead you to the goal or to the end or to the fulfillment, which is spiritual maturity. Now, this doesn't mean, when I say perfection, it doesn't mean, oh, we're going to be perfect. I mean, Romans... Three verse 23 says for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and James in chapter 3 verse 2 says in many things we all stumble now the point is spiritual maturity full mature development bringing us to the place where we stop acting and responding like little children to the d- disappointments of life you know where we stomp our feet and walk out and uh, you know, walk out and say oh, I don't want to talk to you again God you know it's, it's bringing us to a place where we mature and so that's what perfection means. Verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So when we go through trials, the place to go to is God. You know, it's so much more important than running to our friends and end up in, probably in the same situation that Job ended up. But um, trials, like I said before, is always intended to drive us to dependency on God. And so if anyone of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And, and this is sort of a command from James to, to encourage, us, encourage us to pray. When we're in a difficult situation, when we face these trials, you know, trouble should drive us to pray. So we, we go to God because God gives to all liberally and without reproach. And when we ask for wisdom, it will be given to us. You know, we have a generous Father who who wants to pour out um, blessings on us. And Jeremiah, we all know this scripture, 29 verse 11 to 13. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me. And when you search for me with all your heart, you will find me. Matthew 7, verse 7 to 11, Jesus also said, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened for you. For everyone who asks, receive. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be open." And So remember, we're talking about wisdom and strength in a time of trial. You know, when we ask God, God always looks at our heart, um, looks at the sincerity of our heart when we come to him. So I'm not, I'm not saying that, you, you know, I'm going to ask for a fancy car, or fancy house, and God's going to give it to me. No, that's, and James will talk about that later on with um, selfish prayers. But let him ask in faith. You know, when we go to God, ask for wisdom, and God will give it to us. Verse 6. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So our commitment to God needs to be a complete commitment. You know, I can't hold things out and then want to take it back. I can't give God my life and then want to take it back. can't really ask God for wisdom and then just do my own thing. You know, sort of like, yes, Lord, I really need wisdom in this situation. And then when you get, you know, and then I'll decide if I want to follow your will. When we go in prayer to God, especially in these times, you know, we have to um, go in with an attitude of, you know, I want to know your will, God, and not my own will. Remember Jesus when he, just before he went into uh, to the cross, when Jesus um, prayed and he said, Father, if, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus had a complete trust in his Father. He never had any doubt that God didn't know what he was doing. He was completely dependent on God for strength, wisdom, and courage. And yes, the trial was a big one for Jesus, but you know what? God was bigger. And so when we go through trials, we go to God, we ask God for wisdom, and we trust that, you know, whatever happens, God, you know, you know best. Interesting, the word doubting or wavering literally means to debate. And I guess there are times where we just want to argue with, with God about things. You know, God, why are you allowing this trial in my life? You know, what did I do wrong? You know, and, and so for a lot of people, um, their prayers are nothing but a fight. And um, it's double-mindedness doesn't get us the things that God wants for us. It's single-mindedness. We need to ask God in faith, with confidence and complete trust. Proverbs 3, verse 5 to 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. So we come to God with a humble spirit um, and basically just um, say, Whatever you tell me to do, God, that I will do. Complete dependency and trust on God again. Verse 9, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. Uh, but the rich in his humiliation, because as the flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat that it withers to the grass. Its flowers fall and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. And so yeah, James is saying, hey, I know the trial that you're facing might be financial. I mean, in those days, the the Jews, they were scattered abroad due to persecution, first from Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul and then Herod. And so a lot of those people there were were poor. So James is saying, hey, if you're poor, rejoice, because you're, you are exalted. You're actually part of a kingdom where the, the streets are made out of gold. So... We are exalted spiritually. You know, We may be hungry, but we have the bread of life. We may be thirsty, but we have living water. We may be poor, but we have eternal riches. We may be cast aside by men, but we are accepted by God. So, you know, one day we're going to be in heaven, and that's our perspective. You know, this, this world and everything in it is passing away. You know, And we're just passing through. We're not off this world. We, we're from, but we're not off. we we got an eternal expect, um, perspective. And one day, you know, God's going to wipe away all our tears. You know, Revelation 21, my, one of my favorite um, books when I, when I get discouraged. Go read Revelation 21. It's when God's going to make everything new. You know, it's going to be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. And that's what we're looking forward to. And then, and then he says, if you are rich, rejoice. Let the wealthy person rejoice, but not in his riches, but in his being made low, his humiliation. Because you don't have to worry so much about your possessions. Like a flower that fades, all your stuff is going to burn any case. So when we walk with God, we know that he provides all our needs any case. And everything we have is all God's in any case. So if God decides to take it away, hey, it shouldn't worry us. Remember the story of Job? He was one of the wealthiest men in the land on that, in that era. And he had all the money and could buy anything. But um, he had more because he had a walk, a living relationship with God as well. And so in one day, he lost everything. Like, can you imagine losing all your kids and all your possessions in one day? You know what Job did? He tore his clothes and, and he, he fell down and he, and he just said, you know, blessed be, oh, I'll read it from you, naked I came from my mother's um, m- womb and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. So don't get all caught up in, in our possessions, you know. Don't get all obsessed with it. And like Job, you know, he knew that God gave it to him. You know, everything he had, God provided. So if, you, if you're poor or if you're rich, you can, you can um, rejoice because you know where the source of. All, everything in your life comes from. It comes from God. And so we are all humbled at the same level in the trial, and we all have to lean on God. And that's the point. You know, whether you're poor or rich, trials come to humble, come into our life to humble us. True humility says my resource, resources are in God. And now we get to the second point, verse 12, the testing of our faith through temptation. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So here James tells us the reason why we can have a joyous attitude, whether we face a trial or temptation, because he says when you endured this trial or stuck it out or pushed through and held through, or when you have finished the race, you will receive a reward. And the reward is the crown of life, eternal life. I just going to read this because I love what um, Paul writes in First Corinthians chapter nine verse 24. It's such a great analogy of this. He says, um, "Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate or self-controlled, in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest, when I have preached to others, I myself become, should become disqualified. I think that's very important. You know, one day, I'm going to stand in front of my creator. You're going to stand in front of your creator. And we have to give account for what we've done in this life with the time that God's given us. And, you know, when I stand there, and I'm sure when you guys stand there, what we want to hear would be, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, you were faithful with a few things, and I will make you rule over many things. Enter into the joy of our Lord. So verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So we see James shifting from trials, which leads to growth and blessing, to temptation, which leads to sin and death. And every circumstance, like we spoke about, have, temptation or trial, when, whether you face one, you have to make the choice, either I'm going to, feed the spirit or I'm going to feed the flesh so you're either going to go from trial to temptation by the choice you make but let's say we fall into sin you know you fall into the temptation whose fault is it you know we as human beings just have this tendency to just blame anyone but us we don't want to take the responsibility if we mess up and um and no, my wife's smiling at me because um, we—I can use the analogy of our kids. You know, if they do something wrong, if one of them, first thing they do is always blame the, the one next to them, the closest one. Even Reuben is a baby, and if Yannabella does something wrong, she said it was Reuben. You know, so it's just that tendency inside of us that you know we don't like to take responsibility. So um, remember Genesis, um, Genesis when ma- man fell in chapter three, and as you approach verse eleven. Um, Adam and Eve have already sinned and they are confronted by God and God speaks to Adam in verse 9 and he says where are you because God came like every morning he would have a walk with Adam and, and this morning he came and Adam's not there and so he's like where are you Adam and, um, and Adam says I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself and so Adam never did that before. But now he sinned, and he was afraid to face God. And so he was hiding. And God said to him in verse 11, Who told you that you were naked? So all of a sudden you have this self-consciousness that you never had before. What's going on? And then God said, Have you eaten of the tree whereof I commanded you that you shouldn't eat? And listen to Adam. Listen to what he says. All, All he had to say was what? Yes, I did. I took the tree and I ate, but he didn't. He said, the woman whom you gave me, gave to be with me, she gave me the tree and I did eat. So whose fault was it? Well, he suggests that it was Eve's fault, the woman's fault. I mean, after all, he he went to bed the one night. He, He never knew what a woman was. He woke up the next morning, he was married to one. You know, so now what he's saying is, you know, he didn't even know what a woman was. But the real issue is he's not blaming Eve. This, isn't, this, is, this is the statement. Um, the woman whom what? Whom you gave me. That's right. So, yeah, God, you could have picked any woman. Why did you pick this one? Why did you make her to do this? So what, what he's doing is he's blaming God. He's saying, you created her. You put her here. It's your fault. And so that's a tendency that a lot of us do, you know. It's, and Adam wasn't the, the last person who blamed God. It continues every single day. You know, God, you made me with my sinfulness. You made my circumstances. You made my surroundings. And so we just tend to, to, to blame God. But, but James says, don't. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am tempted by God. God, For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. And so this is an exhortation that forbids us to ever blame God. The word here used is, is, it's hard to pronounce, it's aparestos. It means that God is not experienced in evil. He has no experience and he, he doesn't have the capacity. I mean, Leviticus 9, 19 verse 2 says, The Lord is holy. Leviticus 20 verse 26 says the Lord is holy. Isaiah 6. Remember Isaiah when he, he stood before the Lord and he saw the seraphim shouting, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full, filled with his glory. And what happened? He fell down. He, he, he just He says, woe is me. I am undone. Basically saying, I am finished. Why? Because he saw God. In his holiness, and he saw himself in his imperfection, in his sin. So God is holy, and sin cannot penetrate holiness. God is perfect, and we are not. And usually when you know when we argue with God, we have to know we're wrong because God is perfect, you know. But so verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So every person is tempted when he or she is drawn away and enticed by, by his or her what? Own desires. A better translation is lust. Drawn away and enticed are two very interesting words. The first one um, comes from hunting, a hunting term, and it's used to, um, for luring an animal into a trap. A trap is baited and the animal is lured into the trap. And then the second term, is enticed, is a fishing term. The word means literally to capture or catch. So basically to, to bait a hook and catch a fish. So the problem is this. Every person is tempted when the hook is baited or the trap is baited and we are lured away and dragged away by our own lust. Now, I believe deep inside of every man there's this desire for fulfillment. There's this thirst that just doesn't go away. And I think Jesus touched touched on it in um, John 7 verse 37 when he says, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink, and out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so he's talking about a spiritual thirst that man has, but not not a physical one. But what do we do? We try and quench this thirst with fleshly things, don't we? We try and quench this thirst with work, money, clothes, music, drugs, alcohol, whatever. But the only way to quench that thirst is through coming to Jesus and the Holy Spirit fills our heart to overflow with rivers of living water. Now Satan says, comes along and he says you don't have to wait for satisfaction or fulfillment you can have it now why wait for god why deny yourself why take up your cross remember what satan told eve god is keeping something good of good from you you know here you have fulfillment right here it's in the fruit eve and god's trying to keep something good from you he's afraid that you're going to be wise as, as he is when you eat it. I mean, this is the fruit that contains the knowledge of good and evil. But you don't have to wait, Eve. You can have it now. And he holds out the fruit of instant fulfillment. And so does, he does the same for us. He's like, why wait? You know. Yeah, just have a bite. And so we see the person being tempted is being lured deceptively, and then hooked and trapped by sin. It's a great imagery what, what James is using. It's, I mean, you think of animals that are lured into this trap. They, they lure it there because of the bait. It looks so good. You know, when you go catch a fish, whatever fish you go catch, you have to use different baits, whatever the fish likes. So that's what, what, what we see. The animal is lured by the bait. And all they see is the bait. They don't see the hook. So with instead of the expected pleasure, when they grab the bait comes the pain of capture and death. And so it is with temptation. It promises great pleasure, fun, and reward, but it lures us into its trap or hook into a deadly way. And now again, you know, it's not God's fault, it's not Satan's fault. It's not, you know, I mean, yes, Satan bites the hook, maybe people bait the hook. You know, the world might bait the hook, but what pulls us to the hook is our lust. And that's the nature of man. Our flesh has a desire, lust for evil. So the problem is not the tempter, but the tempter tempter without, but the tempter within. That's the problem. And so uh, James shifts his metaphor away from hunting and fishing to childbirth. And he comes to verse 15 and discusses the nature of lust. He says, then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. So James says when lust is conceived, and he sees lust here yeah, as a, a mother conceiving, it lust will bring forth a child. The child is sin, and sin, when it comes out, it doesn't do anything but produce what? death. And so always we have a choice. We're either going to expel the thought or we're going to entertain, nurture and enjoy it. And if you, if you think about it long enough, you will do it. Instead, what should we do? 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, you know, we need to bring our minds into captivity to Christ. Isn't that a great um, truth? you know, thing to do is bring everything in our mind into captivity to Christ. Everything basically has to bow down to to Christ. So an unprotected, uncontrolled, unyielded mind is going to be filled with evil images. So I have to control my emotions. I have to control my mind because that's where the thing gets started. We need a mind of Christ. We need a mind that is set on things above and not on the things on, on earth. We need a mind that is saturated in the Word of God. We need a mind, like Paul says in Romans 12, verse two, that is transformed and not conformed to the world. To put it simply, we, to love the Lord our God with our entire mind. And so if we don't do that, that's what will happen. When, when desire, lust conceives, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is all grown up, it brings forth death. So basically, when sin is born, it is born a murderer. Isn't that a great picture? It's born a killer. That's what sin does. Sin is a killer. The wages of sin is death. Spiritual death, separating our soul from God. Physical death, separating our soul from our body. And eternal death, separating the soul and body from God. All sin ever produces is death. So the idea that we are bringing something satisfying behavior to life is a lie. Because all we bring is sin, and sin brings forth death. And so verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So every good and perfect gift is from above. I mean, the only good Things that come down from above, from God is good and perfect. So why in the world are we running to um, baited hooks when God is pouring out everything good and everything that we need to, to um, go get through the trial and for fulfillment? So full-on divine gifts. And um, notice that he's, um, he's called Father of Lights. That's a great statement because... Um, that's an ancient Jewish way of referring to God as creator. The lights they had in mind was the sun, moon, and stars. He's the father of lights, but, but with him there's no variation or no shifting of shadow. It's very graphic. It's basically saying he's the one who created the stellar bodies. He created all of them, but he's not like them. He doesn't vary. He doesn't change. He doesn't dim. He doesn't brighten. They are there in the daytime and gone at night year at night God in the daytime so, but God isn't like that God is a brilliant light and his light of glory goodness and grace doesn't change and so first John 1 verse 5 in him is no darkness at all Malachi 3 verse 6 I am the Lord I change not and then the, uh, number three we get um, to the testing of our word our faith through our response to the word the word of God the Word is the heart and soul of our Christian experience. In it, God speaks, and through it, He saves. And so, first, James gives us a bit of an introduction saying about the saving power of the Word. He says, says, verse 18, Of His own will He brought us forth by the Word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruit of His creatures. So, what prompted God to save us? It was His own will. Nobody forced God to, to save us, his love was undeserved, unbought and unsown. and he brought us forth, basically means that he, to give birth, spiritual birth, being born again. John three verse seven, when, remember when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus? we became His children, and he gave us a new life in Christ, and then by the word of truth. And so the Bible is always the instrument that God used um, in new birth. In every genuine case of conversion, the word's always either spoken or read. Because without the word, we won't even know that it, we can have salvation. So saying that, uh, he's, he's giving us the introduction of the power of the word of God. And then he goes on in verse 19, saying, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of God does not produce the righteousness of the, sorry, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So after he gave us a quick introduction of the power of this, the saving power of the Word of God in salvation, um, and what we've experienced. And now that we have to continue in it, in receiving the word with meekness, he said, because read Psalm 119, the word is our food, it's our drink, our light, our lamp, our path. And then from that line, it's along that line that he says, and here is how I want you to respond to the word of God. And in verse 19, he says, let everyone first be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Quick to listen. What does he mean? Does he mean that we just need to be good listeners, good quiet listeners, you know, um, be quick to, to hear what your your wife is saying or your friends are saying and then just be slow to speak? I don't think that's what he's talking about. I mean, he's talking about hearing and doing the Word of God. The whole context is the Word of God. So. The issue is the Word of God, and so what he says, be quick to listen, and he means listen to what? Listen to the Word of God. The text actually says be quick to the hearing, which is like a sermon or a lesson or an exposition or scripture, and uh, the idea is an eagerness to grasp every opportunity we get to increase our hearing of God's Word. It means to run to hear the Word of God. Coming Sunday mornings, Because I want to hear the word of God taught. You know, I've got that hunger and thirst for the word of God. So to be quick to listen to the word of God. And when we get into temptation, that that tests us to the very limit. We go to the word of God. And it's through the power of the word of God that we resist temptation. I mean, thy word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. This psalm is right. So James says, if you want to test yourself, start with being quick to listen to the word. Am I quick to listen to the word? Do I have that hunger and thirst for the word word of God? And the second thing he says is we need to do to be slow to speak. Interesting, it's the literal Greek says slow for the speaking. Basically what he's saying is as quick as you are to listen, be just that slow to the speaking. So when it comes to hearing the word of God, you know, we're in a hurry, we, need to, we want to hear it, but when it comes to teaching the Word of God, slow down, because now you just engage yourself in um, teaching the Word of the living God. So basically, before you, before you stand in front of people and teach, you have to make sure that you are well prepared and everything that that includes. Notice in James 3, later on in chap, chapter 3, verse 1, he says, My brethren... Brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. We need, need to consider that, um, the cost of the terms, in terms of accountability. And Jesus warned, he said in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, he said, For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more." So, basically, when it Be quick to hear the word of God taught. um, uh, When it comes to the teaching of the word of God, slow down. And the third thing, um, slow to anger. And the word is used here as orgate. It speaks of a a deep, inside deep resentment, uh, a smouldering resentment. So basically, when it comes to the word, you're quick to listen, slow to speak it. And when. When you hear something from the word, don't build up inside of you some kind of a resentment because it doesn't agree with what you, you think it, it should um, be saying. Because maybe it confronts your sin and you get um, convicted. And so it's talking about a reaction to our word, to, to the word of God. And so basically, don't argue or get upset when you hear, hear the word of God, but receive it with meekness. Verse 20 Um, For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And what is the purpose of teaching the Word? To produce what? Righteousness of God. And what does that mean? To make us right with God. And and that can't happen if we're fighting and um, resenting the Word or have this, this evil attitude towards it. Therefore, verse 21, Lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. And so the key word here is to receive. But before the word receive, we have the words lay aside, or better translated, put off. And so, in other words, you can't receive the um, until you've already put off. You cannot receive the implanted word until you have put off filthiness and wickedness. And so, you've got to unload some things, so and to put off originally meant to put your clothes off or take off your dirty, filthy, soiled clothes. And um, it's like the idea when you come off work and you go and change your clothes, you have a shower and um, you put on new clothes. And so so you get rid of all the, um, the stuff, maybe... Uh, all, all the dirt and filth, the sin in your life. And then you, you come with a humble attitude. That's the whole thing. Meekness is, sorry, I'm looking at the time then. I see I'm over time, so I have to. Um, so meekness means humility. So you, when you approach the word, when I sit down and I, I open the word of God, you know I come with a spirit of, Lord, I want to I hear your word. I want to be teachable. Teach me your word. So that's how we receive the word of God. We come humbly. Um, and submit ourselves to the Word, and with a spirit of teachability. Verse 22, But be doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. And how easy is it for us to, to do that? We come in, into church, and we sit down, and we listen to the Word, we hear the Word, and naturally, you know, we just think, because I heard the Word, I'm doing it. So James is saying, be doers of the Word, and not hearers, hearers only, deceiving yourself. So you, we can't just hear the word. We actually have to apply it to our lives. We have to obey it. Verse 23, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Now, what, what is the purpose of a mirror? A mirror is basically shows me a reflection of myself. So it will tell me, okay, you need to put a comb through your hair or... You know, you have to brush your teeth or you need to shave. That's the purpose of a mirror. And now maybe you look in the mirror one morning and you... Um, this happened to me before. I needed to shave because at work we always have to be clean shaven. So you shave and then you go to work and then you sit and you feel, oh, I didn't shave. And then you go look in the mirror like, oh, no, I just didn't sh- shave yet. Yeah. So you missed a spot. So maybe what happened is... Uh, the phone rang and you got distracted and you walked out. And so the idea is, you know, the same thing yeah, here, the word is the mirror. It shows us our imperfections, it shows us all our, our faults and our blemishes. And then what we do is we close it and we walk out here, we, we hear it, we see what we have to do, but we, just, we get distracted and we, we go out and we never did anything about it and it stays there. So we, we never do anything bad, And that's what James is saying. He's like, a year is like that. He, he looks at himself in the face. He sees himself, and then he turns around and he walks away. He forgets. And it's the same way with the word, if we only hear the word. and so, um, But he contrasts that with um, the one who actually does the word as well. And he says in verse 25, he says, But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty... And continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. And so yeah, you get the person who looks. And the word looks, yes, it literally means to stoop over, bend down, and examine something with care or precision. So basically, in the old days, their mirrors was like little mirrors, tiny ones, but it was just sort of a kind of a metal brass for, or silver for richer people. It was uh, gold. That's polished. So, If you sort of hold it like this and you, and you turn it, you can sort of see the reflection of what you want to see. So this guy is really getting into it. He's holding the mirror, turning it and, and looking into it. This is the guy who actually does the Word. He wants to see, he wants to see what he needs to do, um, the adjustments that need to be done. And so I guess our attitude basically is when we come to the Word of God, is the key to everything isn't it it's the way we we approach the word of god am i just going to hear it or am i actually going to do it so we have to be humble teachable and in everything when we come to the word of god and then apply it to our lives psalm 119 11 15 says to 15 says your word i have hidden in my heart that i might not sin against you I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. And then verse 25 ends with a great statement, this man shall be blessed in in his deeds. And that's the blessing is not in the hearing, but it's in the doing. It's in the applying of the word, the application, and so verse 26. If anyone among you thinks, and this is the last few verses and these three short points. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So number one, if you want to if you want to see if you are doing the word of God, number one would be it will show up in your speech. Do you, do you want to know whether you're a doer? Listen to your conversations. What do you say? Listen to your words, your jokes. You know, how do you handle words? What comes out of our mouth? Lusty things or godly things, things that exalt, lift up or honor Christ. Is your speech or my speech seasoned with grace? Like Jesus said, for out of the abundance of of the heart, his mouth speaks in Luke 6, verse 45. And then number two, it will show up in your relationship to others. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. If you want to know whether we are a person that's a doer, listen to what we say and watch how we deal with people in need. You'll see the love of Christ in a doer. You'll see sacrifice, compassion, kind-heartedness, tenderness, mercy, and grace. And then number three, holy living. And so lastly, at the end of verse 27, he says, And to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Holy living, godly living. Um, So basically, if we're a doer, we have pure speech, loving care, and holy li- living. Now, I suppose I would be honest, based to say that, you know, the more we hear the word of God, the more and and we don't apply it, we only hear it. The more we train ourselves to ungodliness, because it's kind, it just kind of roll, rolls off like water off a duck, duck's back. So we need to be submissive the Word of God. And that's what we do, yeah. We teach the Word of God verse by verse in order that um, we can also apply it. Let's pray. Father, we just uh, thank you for your Word, Lord, and um, I feel that I rushed it a little bit at the end, Lord, but I really pray that, Lord, your Word will stick in our heads. Father, that... um, we won't just go away from you and just um, forget what's been taught here, Lord, but that when we face trials, that we know there's a purpose for the trial to produce Christ-likeness, to produce Christian maturity. And um, when we face temptation, we can always come to you. We know you always make a way out, Lord. And Help us to be dependent on you in everything, Lord. And and um, thank you for your word, Father. Thank you that we can stand on your word and um, your word is sharper than any double-edged, uh, two-edged sword, Lord. And we pray that you'll, you'll help us to apply your word to our lives, Lord. Lord, we love you so much. Thank you for the rain. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. And um, be with us today, in Jesus' name. Amen.